Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. And while we may have given our eulogy for the Afghanistan war, what does this defeat mean for the U.S. empire? Keep in mind that the United States is still allied to religious zealots in Syria, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. So why not the Taliban in Afghanistan? On the National Mall, Native Americans vow to fight back against continued violation and pollution of their treaty lands. We will not be exploited our sovereignty will be respected, and we have a duty all across this country and globally for all indigenous peoples. And the fight for green space and fresh air also continues in D.C. as residents head into federal court to block what they say is a massive giveaway of historic public parkland to private developers. The community used to enjoy this as a park. It was the first integrated park in Washington. At the turn of the century, and even into the 20s, Rock Creek Park itself was segregated. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, as breathless as the coverages of the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan, it is equally breathtaking to witness the erasure of history of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, or would we say interference in Afghanistan, beginning in the 1970s and up to today, when a record number of more than 7,000 U.S. bombs were dropped on that country in 2019. And as news stories abound about what is feared for the plight of women and girls under the Taliban, remember that according to the United Nations, U.S. bombs have killed or hurt tens of thousands of Afghan civilians, including women and children. And while urban women in Kabul did make gains in education and professions during the past two decades, one in three girls in Afghanistan is still forced into or sold into a child marriage. In 2018, a nine-year-old girl named Samia, who was sold into a marriage at the age of seven, was murdered by her adult husband. Now, for more on the aftermath of the U.S. exit from Afghanistan, I'm joined again by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the prolific author and activist Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. And Gerald, since we spoke for last week's show, the capital, Kabul, has been taken over by the Taliban. There was the deadly chaos, mass exit, and attempted exits at Kabul's airport. And a historical and hysterical news coverage, I think, that routinely collapses this 20 years of illegal U.S. occupation and imperialist hubris into a roughly 72-hour period when all the House of Cards came tumbling down. So what has stood out for you as an historian watching events unfold during the past week? I think the question is, what is the ultimate meaning for U.S. imperialism? That is to say, is this a so-called Suez moment? Recall in 1956, Britain, France, and Israel attacked Nasser's Egypt over control of the Suez Canal. Under unremitting pressure, not only from the Soviet Union, but the United States, 
Britain backed down, which marked the eclipse of the British Empire, France chose to move in a different direction, uh, seeking to form a more independent policy, and Israel, of course, followed London. The question is, will this defeat of U.S. imperialism in Afghanistan mark a kind of Suez moment? And there are some straws in the wind. That is to say that ultimately the United States is the guarantor for world imperialism, and other imperialist forces are quite upset about the manner in which the United States was ousted from Kabul. Theresa May, the former British Prime Minister, criticized Mr. Biden sharply in Parliament. You see that Armand Laschet, the presumed successor to Chancellor Merkel in Berlin, said that this was the biggest debacle for NATO in its history, which is saying something given all the fiascos NATO has been involved in. And likewise, we have to ask uh, what will be the meaning for China and Russia? Uh, that is to say, Pakistan, which provided the Taliban sanctuary, is one of China's closest allies, and one would think that China would be in the catbird seat with regard to the future of Afghanistan, which may be bad news for U.S. imperialism. And on the other hand, it could be a post-1970s moment. Recall that in 1975, the United States was ousted from Vietnam. In 1979, you had the Iranian Revolution, the Grenada Revolution, the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua. But U.S. imperialism, which was thought to be on the back foot, began to turn things around by making an alliance with these very same religious zealots in Afghanistan, helping to undermine a left-leaning regime backed by the Soviet Union, dragging the Soviet Union into a quagmire in Afghanistan, as we discussed last week, which weakened the Soviet Union, leading to its collapse by 1991. Now, one of the questions is, will the Taliban join with the United States against China, against Iran, its neighbor, and against Russia? Uh, keep in mind that the United States is still allied with religious zealots in Syria, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. So why not the Taliban in Afghanistan? So this is the question I think that the progressive forces are going to have to answer. I know that we sort of discussed during the week this seizure by the U.S. of billions of dollars in Afghan government reserves held in U.S. banks. And this blocking the Taliban from accessing these billions of dollars that belong to the Afghan people. So given what you just said, how do you think this plays into the this situation? Obviously, we've seen this play before in terms of the assets of Venezuela being seized as the U.S. did not officially recognize the duly elected government there and continues to recognize this a fake president, Juan Guaido. And I believe also the U.K. continues to, to pirate billions in Venezuela gold to this day. So how will this play out for the Taliban in terms of who they choose to ally with? Well, it can go one of two directions once again. The United States can hold this fortune hostage and dangle it before the Taliban and say the United States will return its money if it chooses to ally with Washington in confronting Iran, Russia, and China. Or the United States, which has a kind of revenge gene in this cultural DNA, might be so upset with being embarrassed 
and humiliated on the international stage that it will hold on to this fortune and then further alienate the Taliban, drawing it further into the arms of China and Russia. Some uh, notes from Biden's speech where he basically, you know, took ownership, the buck stops here, that type of language, taking ownership for ending the war, where he also talked about needing to confront other terrorists' enemies or confront other challenges in the region. And he, I think he also mentioned Africa. And, and since his speech, I've you know, read other uh, news reports about the United States having special forces or some type of troops in the Congo. And of course, we know about the ongoing bombing of Somalia. So how does this continued activity by the U.S. in Africa and the Middle East impact what's happening in Afghanistan right now? Well, the religious zealots who are oftentimes allied with the Islamic State, so-called, are uncorking the champagne bottles with regard to their campaigns in northern Nigeria, in the Sahel, from Mauritania on the west, all the way through Mali, Niger, Chad, uh, through Sudan, all the way to the Red Sea on the east. They have forces as well in northern Mozambique. So they are all celebrating this U.S. defeat in Afghanistan. And I have to say, it has been a shot of adrenaline into the bloodstream of these religious zealots. And this does not necessarily bode well for stability in Africa, particularly since the United States is continuing to hold these military maneuvers. AFRICOM, you well know, has been holding maneuvers in the last month or two in Northwest Africa in conjunction with Morocco, now one of Israel's closest allies. Israel now having observer status at the African Union. So the plot thickens with regard to Africa, I'm afraid to say. So... We'll keep watching that story. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. There were major wins this week for those working for environmental and climate justice. The dangerous pesticide chlorpyrifos is finally being banned by the Environmental Protection Agency even after decades of proof that it is tied to permanent brain damage in children. The Army Corps of Engineers will review the environmental impact that a 2,000-acre Formosa plastics factory will have in Louisiana. The black and brown low-income communities of St. James Parish, located in what is known as Cancer Alley, have been fighting the $9.4 billion petrochemical project that calls for 14 major chemical and other factories on the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Also, a federal judge tossed out construction permits for an Alaska oil drilling project that both the Trump and Biden administrations approved. Judge Sharon Gleason of the U.S. District Court for Alaska ruled that the Trump administration, which gave initial approval, failed to adequately consider the climate impacts of the Willow Project, which, if completed, would produce up to 160,000 barrels of oil a day over a 30-year period. And indigenous women who are leading the fight against the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota met virtually with a UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights this week to discuss the violence they have faced at the hands of police, who are being paid through a public safety escrow trust funded by Enbridge. $2 million has been paid so far to the police through the fund. 
These wins come after indigenous groups rallied on the National Mall to call for a halt to violations of treaty lands across the United States for mining, drilling, and pipeline extraction that are polluting the environment and fueling the climate catastrophe. Jay Julius, a leader of the Lumi Nation, was one of the speakers. Let's invite everybody back to being one with what they call nature now. We are still one with. We still feel the pain when the orcas die, when the salmon go extinct, when the rivers are now lakes because they're dammed. Everything's got a spirit. Let's invite everyone back to being one with, one with nature. That's what's going to take us to a future that our children can look back and say thank you. More voices from that action after the headlines. Now, there are also wins for organized labor, and Thomas O'Rourke has the latest. A National Labor Relations Board hearing officer has determined that Amazon substantially and illegally interfered during a unionization drive at its BHM-1 Fulfillment Center in Bessemer, Alabama this past spring and could force a revote. The hearing officer sustained numerous union objections to the conduct of the vote centered on the unannounced and unscheduled placement of a U.S. mailbox as a warehouse entrance. A decision to order a new election now rests with the Atlanta-based NLRB regional director and is expected any moment. Meanwhile, the Baltimore Amazon Workers Rank and File Safety Committee has issued a statement denouncing Amazon's decision to bring back mandatory masks only a few months after it had dropped its mask protocol along with all its other safety steps prematurely. This rank-and-file safety committee warned that it's Amazon's policy to blame workers for the continuing pandemic while absolving itself of any blame. It has raised demands for a genuine system of testing and contact tracing, reinstatement of those fired for resistance to Amazon's cavalier policies towards workers' health, a halt to its abusive, relentless speed-up, and reinstatement of hazard pay with retroactive pay increases. Nabisco workers at three U.S. production plants are now on indefinite strike, demanding a fair contract and a halt to company plans for major changes to their workweek schedules. Beginning with some 200 workers in Portland, Oregon on August 10th, Hundreds more workers in Richmond, Virginia, and Aurora, Colorado, have joined fellow unionists of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco, and Grain Millers Union to fight against years of deteriorating working conditions, cuts to health care benefits, eliminated pensions, and threats of plant closures, despite company profits of some $27 billion during pandemic year 2020. Now the company is demanding the elimination of daily overtime and weekend premium pay, as well as more temp workers and more cuts to health benefits. According to union opponents, the BCT-GM leadership has diverted workers from unified struggle and villainized their Mexican comrades by demanding a halt to the outsourcing of work to Nabisco plants in Mexico as well as calling for a boycott of Mexican-made Nabisco products. How much this will impact these bakery union workers' will and capacity to fight is not certain, but stay tuned to On the Ground for updates. 
For On The Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. A new report by the Movement for Black Lives and the City University of New York School of Law says that the U.S. federal government targeted Black Lives Matter activists who marched in support of racial justice after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in 2020. The report says the decision to charge hundreds of activists with inflated federal indictments stemmed from top-down directives from former President Donald Trump and former Attorney General William Barr. Federal criminal charges typically carry longer sentences than state charges, and they come with higher conviction rates. The Movement for Black Lives is calling on the Biden administration and members of Congress to provide amnesty and compensation for all prisoners involved in last year's protests to pass the BREATHE Act to reallocate funding toward more humane forms of public safety and to abolish the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which was activated to target peaceful protesters. And legal advocacy groups are launching a new effort to prevent up to 4,000 people on CARES Act home confinement from returning to prison. The National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs will match people on home confinement with pro bono attorneys or federal public defenders who will consider filing compassionate release motions in federal court on their behalf. Over the past six months, criminal justice advocates have urged the White House to rescind a Trump-era memo that says that people serving their sentences on home confinement should be returned to federal prison once the pandemic ends. Jonathan M. Smith, executive director of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, said, quote, COVID further exposed the injustice of mass incarceration. The home confinement program was an important first step to not only address the public health crisis, but also recognition that people can come home consistent with humanity and public safety. It is shocking that after nearly two years of building lives, the Biden administration would yank people back to incarceration, end quote. For more information, visit washlaw.org. That's washlaw.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
it's appropriate that we are here on the mall between the Lincoln Memorial and the United States Capitol. Long before there was a country, the creator called our ancestors to these sacred lands. Long before there was a Congress, long before there was a state, long before there was a District of Columbia, these were sacred lands that our almighty creator called each and every one of us to. And while we have ceded millions of acres of precious land by treaty, we've never relinquished that spiritual connection that we share with our almighty creator, with each other, and with our sacred sites. Through the generations of teachings, it is our duty to ensure that sacred sites are protected not only for our generation, but all those generations that will follow. We understand and recognize that in this very moment that is being threatened, we understand in this very moment on this hill, on both sides of Capitol Hill, behind doors, in rooms of negotiating, there's a powerful force in this country that is seeking to exploit for profit our sacred sites. But like all those generations that have gone before us, we know you cannot put a price tag on our sacred sites. We've known our sacred sites are not to be negotiated. We know our sacred sites have a value, an incalculable value that is necessary for all of us and every generation to follow. And so as we stand here together, I want each and every one of you to think about your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your elders, all those that have gone before you. Think about your grandparents who may have survived a 1918 pandemic. Think about your parents who may have survived civil rights conflicts in the 60s and 70s and felt like they could not walk into public buildings. Think about all of those struggles of those that have gone before us, generation after generation. And while they faced those conflicts, they became stronger generation after generation. And we are that generation to inherit that multi-generational wisdom, that multi-generational strength. And our almighty creator has called our generation to stand tall, to protect our sacred sites, to stand tall here in the Capitol on our inherent powers, on our treaties, on our sovereignty, to say we will not be exploited, our sovereignty will be respected, and we have a duty all across this country and globally for all Indigenous peoples, because there are Indigenous peoples in this moment who are risking life and death to speak out for the Amazon, life and death to speak out, to protect that which is sacred. And it is up to us to hold the most powerful country on the planet accountable to protect our sacred sites. And as we do that here in the United States, we will uphold this country, lead this country to protect sacred sites all over the world. That is our duty. That is our charge. That is our calling. On behalf of the National Congress of American Indians, we stand firm in the mission. We honorably accept that mission that is represented by this totem, and we will support and honor our sacred sites. Siokwil Chihatsi. My name is Second Water Woman.
My English name is great-grandmother Mines. We have been on a healing journey throughout Turtle Island. We are transplants from the east prior to the colonization and reside in Dakota territories in the northern part of the state. We have made the journey heads to California to take part in ceremonies with the Diné prayer runners that ran 215 miles for the Canadian children that were recently discovered and the eight that were returned home to the Dakotas and the many other children for the government boarding schools that patiently await to be found and to be returned to their grandparents' homelands. We rested back in Minnesota and got ready to come east to be with the totem and all that resides within her because we see her as a feminine. There is something I would like to read to you from my fellow water protectors across Turtle Island. This particularly comes because it stands in our territory, line three. We are grateful to you and your commitment to Indian people and Mother Earth. We also acknowledge the complexity of your position. This I'm speaking to Deb Holland. We're asking you to suspend the construction of line three until a full assessment of endangered species, cultural reasons, and water can be undertaken. This pipeline violates the trust responsibility that the United States has to American Indian people, causing widespread destruction of treaty resources like wild rice and poisoning of waters full of fish and life. This project had an inadequate review of endangered or threatened species, and there was not an adequate cultural resource review for this project. This June, Enbridge received the largest water allocation in the history of Minnesota. We're from the land of 10,000 lakes. Can you imagine? The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources approved a permit to Enbridge for 630 million gallons and allowed the company to amend that to 5 billion gallons, a tenfold increase over what was reviewed in the environmental impact statement. This 5 billion gallons of water allocation occurred without an environmental review and in a time of the deepest drought in our recent history. The tribes were denied information and asked to review the project two weeks before the permit was issued. Not only are tribal nations concerned, but 32, 32 of our state legislators in Minnesota wrote a July 27th letter to the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency asking the agency temporarily suspend the Section 401 certification and order Enbridge, order Enbridge to immediately halt all drilling along the Line 3 route until the state is no longer experiencing drought conditions, until a thorough investigation can be completed by your agency into the fracking accidents. This Canadian corporation is destroying the Great Lakes in our world. In time that we are trying to address climate change, this corporation will bring three times more oil than it did before to our land, tripling carbon emissions. We're asking you, we're asking you here in this land, this capital, the White House, Biden administration, come on guys, this is for the people. This ain't just an Indian thing. This is for all people. This planet here, this planet here is made up of water but most of the water that we have here is very limited for us human beings to survive. We want you to wake up because this is in the heart of our land. So we're asking you to suspend the construction of Line 3 
and to protect our future generations. Now, myself and you see my, we're the top hat long skirt society, we're Madewans. We're in this leg here to be with the totem and the carvers and all our relatives and all our relative allies. We're gonna return paying our respect to deliver that last bundle to the Carlisle boarding school and to put our prayers down. So I want to say miigwech to these carvers for the East that they came from. I never thought I'd see this day. You see, I'm from that boarding school here. I have a brother that never came home. I had a sister that was murdered. So everything, those prayers within this totem, and Deb Holland, her people, and for all the people that put this together, our cloak has fallen, and the Red Nations has rise up. But the prophecies unfold. Be quick. You have been listening to Indigenous leaders speaking on the National Mall on July 29th, 2021 to call for a halt to violations of treaty lands across the United States. Illegal mining, drilling, and pipeline extraction industries on these lands are polluting the environment and fueling the climate catastrophe. The rally was also a blessing ceremony for a 25-foot totem pole carved by the Lumi Nation House of Tears carvers who traveled to these same sites of indigenous resistance across the country, including to northern Minnesota, where there is a fight to stop the completion of the Enbridge Line 3 tar sands pipeline, which has been illegally rerouted through treaty lands of the Anishinaabe people. The first speaker was Fawn Sharp, president of the National Congress of American Indians. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, DC residents who have been fighting a plan by the district and private developers to convert the 25-acre McMillan Park into a complex including nearly 700 apartments and townhouses are heading into federal court. The new lawsuit alleges that destroying the park, which was the district's first racially integrated park, violates historic preservation law and federal land use covenants for the park which is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Joining me to discuss this new effort to save McMillan Park are two guests, Jerome Peliquin, a resident of Ward 5 and president of the Urban Sea Corporation, a B Corporation platform for community economic development, 
and Daniel Walkoff, president of the newly formed Committee for the Macmillan Park Conservancy. Welcome, Jerome and Daniel, to On the Ground. Thank you. Thank you. So let me start with you, Jerry. Tell us why this new lawsuit is different from the other lawsuits you filed in the past and, and what exactly it says. Well, first of all, it's different because it's a federal lawsuit instead of a, a, a local district lawsuit. In the beginning, we didn't have an organization and we didn't have any funds. And so we were filing everything pro se, meaning we were filing the lawsuits ourselves with students. And every time we'd show up, the, the Bells would have five, $7,000 a month lawyers sitting there and, and us. So we went through a long protracted battle in the, in the superior courts about violations of the city's own rules that it had made continuously. At the end of that chain, the mayor was down with a group of developers cutting a ribbon at McMillan Park when the three panel Superior Court judges said, stop, you haven't lived up to the requirements in order to build this park. And when was that? Just to refresh everybody, when was that ribbon cutting and when did the court say stop? Like 2018, maybe? Yeah. And since then, we've been fighting a delaying action because we still didn't have any resources and we still didn't have an attorney. And filing in the federal court is no joke. It's a major issue. So it's taken us that much time to get together the resources and the volunteers and the people necessary to do so and to draft the complaint. And we finished it and filed it. So we're now in federal district court with the federal judge. This will be where the tale will be decided. So, Daniel, tell us about these covenants and use of the land at McMillan Park and why you believe that this is a violation of the federal land use requirements. Well, we go back a little ways to when the district government was offered the site, when the sand filtration for the fresh water system was transferred towards the reservoir to a modern filtration system. When was that? 1987, we understand that the federal government offered the site to the district for free if the district agreed to leave it as green space, which is what was planned all the way back in 1905 as part of the so-called emerald necklace of greenswards through the city by Senator James McMillan. So in 1987, when GSA transferred the land to the district and the district didn't agree to taking it for free and guaranteeing it as green space, General Services Administration assigned historic preservation covenants that restrict any work on the site to what's called the Secretary of Interior's Standards for Rehabilitation of Historic Buildings. And those standards, you can't demolish features, you can't move them around, you have to respect the historic context of the site. And certainly the 50 buildings and 700 condos and dividing the site up with two gigantic medical office buildings and demolishing the underground structures where the water was filtered, that clearly violates the the secretary's standards. So the federal government had its intention to keep the adjacent land to the reservoir green space and preserve the fascinating history of McMillan sand filtration site. And they even wrote a covenant that says this is for the benefit of the inures of the people of the District of Columbia in perpetuity. So when 
The D.C. government bought the site. They paid $9.3 million. They left the fences up. They've excluded the community for 35 years. They have not produced anything with the $9.3 million they spent of our tax money. And we are the owners of this site. The community used to enjoy this as a park. It was the first integrated park in Washington. At the turn of the century and even into the 20s, Rock Creek Park itself was segregated. So this is a very important historical site in the African-American culture of D.C. And the D.C. government basically has treated it like a commodity. They have literally fenced it off, let it almost a demolition by neglect, and literally relegated it from the history of the city because they're in collusion with the developers and they want to deliver this land our 25 acres in what's called a surplus to give the 25 acres to the developers, basically steal it from the people of D.C. So it's a fascinating open green space in the middle of the city. If anybody's ever been to Central Park and see how wonderful it is and special to be out in the in a meadow, having the city all around you, this was D.C.'s Central Park from 1905 to 1941. So we're saying you stole the enjoyment of the community from 1987 to now. Any government not corrupt would be happy to deliver its people a beautiful outdoor 25-acre historic green space. But they warehoused it. They basically blighted it now with semi-demolition. But the courts stopped the demolition. And we're moving in federal court to say those restrictive covenants don't allow that development. What was the last time it was actually open as a park for people to enjoy? Right. So it was an interesting hybrid of public utility, right? The reservoir is adjacent to it. And the 25-acre sand filtration site was designed, landscaped by the Olmsted Jr. firm and interestingly, an African-American designer named Gallagher. It was almost going to be named Gallagher Park. So from 1905, when the Macmillan plan planned the mall, they planned the filtration site, they brought the engineers from the Chicago World's Fair to design this brilliant natural filtration system where underground are 20 acres of massive concrete cisterns that filter the water through four feet of sand gather it up underneath, and it's basically gravity-fed down into the city. So the idea was a very innovative idea. The surface would be a promenade for the community to come and enjoy the sunset views, but the underground is the filtration system for fresh water for the district. So that was from 1905 to 1941. And it had all kinds of activities, all kinds of park activities. It was called the Bloomingdale Playground, And in 1941, there was fear of sabotage by the Axis powers. So they fenced it off. They actually had gun emplacements there to protect the water system from sabotage. So why wasn't it reopened for the people in 1945 when there was no longer a threat of sabotage, of course? Well, the reason that we think it wasn't reopened, even by the federal government, maybe it was open temporarily, is that Bloomingdale was a segregated neighborhood. And 
they were not eager to give this very important amenity that the African-American community could enjoy. Remember, no other parks are integrated. So it's actually concurrent that the legal fight by Thurgood Marshall's mentor, John Houston Hamilton, was on the next block fighting restrictive housing covenants. And right there on Bryan Street, the Supreme Court struck down racially restrictive housing covenants. So it kind of fits together simultaneously. They weren't adding an amenity back that the African-American community enjoyed. We have oral histories from two or three seniors in Bloomingdale that are on YouTube. Miss Ella says, that was our paradise. My mother made a sandwich for us. We went out to the reservoir. We spent the entire day. They would sleep there on hot nights. It was paradise. It was just like a place away from home. I mean, you didn't have, we didn't have to drive to get up there. You could just walk, exercise. <laughs> and we had all the opening and the space and the sand, the water, and what have you. So we're advocating that it return to recreation space for the city, along with those restrictions that say you can't just build anything you want here. And our plan actually would be to restore the Olmsted landscaping, the beautiful steps. There's a gorgeous sculpture that's a fountain, and it's a Senator James McMillan memorial that was done by Herbert Adams. And the D.C. government has just allowed the site to deteriorate. They just practically destroyed the sculpture. And in complete financial malfeasance, they blocked the community, did nothing with the $9.5 million they spent of taxpayer money for 34 years in order to hand it to the developers in a what's called a surplus. So billions of dollars of public money and land are transferred to the developers. And we're fighting that, too. It's our land. We want to take it back for the community. And now I'm joined by Mrs. Jimmy Boinkin. She is a neighbor of McMillan Park. Actually, she's lived across the street from the park for more than 50 years. Thank you for joining me today on the show, Mrs. Boykin. Thank you for having me. Well, we are doing this piece because of this new federal lawsuit filed to oppose development of the park. And I know you're a lead plaintiff in the suit. So tell us your experience uh, living across from the open space that has been fenced off for decades and why it's been important for you to join in the fight to save McMillan Park. At one time, they would open up and our ANC commissioner, we would have meet and greets for the new neighbors. We would each bring chairs, tables, and talk. And there would be someone there to guide us all the way through, you know, the entire place. And it was just gorgeous. And to see in the spring and the summer, to see the geese and all come back and have their babies. And they would walk through here like this was their neighborhood. (laughs) No one touched them. 
They would walk all through. The mamas would lead their babies through, and they would take the same path every day. And we would sit and enjoy them. And they want to destroy this, the last of it. And to say to tear that down, I don't know what all else they want to put there. But as far as apartments and some sort of medical assistance or whatever, there are four hospitals right at Michigan Avenue and North Capitol and First. Mm -hmm. And there's another one on Georgia Avenue. There's Howard University Hospital. But they're walking distance from me. If anyone would like to come and sit on my porch with me at times, the light changes like every 30 seconds. Anytime you see 45, 50, sometimes more than that, cars go through that light before it changes back again. Not only cars, trucks, buses, all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, motorcycles, whatever. And this has increased over the 50 years. And it's really something to see. I drove around the other day just to go to the hardware store. I said, well, let me drive down and look and see what the neighborhood looks like. It is no longer a neighborhood. It's all apartments being built there. Mm -hmm. All condos, 700,000. You tell me who in the name of heaven, but this COVID going on, people on unemployment haven't been working for months, can afford that. She wants to put more up the street from where I live. Mm -hmm. It's enough to sit out front and, and breathe in those fumes. Um, from the cars, as it is. And then to put more up the street, I don't care about underground parking. Underground parking, my foot. Mm. They would have to get up there to go underground. Right, right. And you're not going to put no 200 cars underground up at McMillan. Leave it alone, for the love of God, leave it alone. It was gorgeous the way it was. It was, we enjoyed it the way it was to see those geese. We used to take our kids on the 4th of July, take a fold-up chair, a drink, walk up to Michigan Avenue in front of Children's Hospital and sit. Do you know you can see the fireworks from there without having to get on a bus and go downtown? Wow. We can see the fireworks on the 4th of July. Right there at McMillan Park, sitting right there on Michigan Avenue in the grass. And they're going to take that? I yeah. tell you, I, I get so worked up behind that. I tell you, I just don't know. Right. I don't know. I guess, you know, I guess they say, that's a silly old lady. You know, she's 80 years old. So, you know, heck with her or whatever. But yeah. these young people coming behind me will miss out. Mm -hmm. They will truly miss out. I was looking at a YouTube video of a Ward 5 resident, uh, Ella Walker. And in 2015, she made a video, an oral history of growing up as a little girl, uh, being able to go to the park before they put the fence up around it. And I guess she was talking about like around the 30s or something. And I know you didn't have that same experience because, you know, you came to the area later. But what is your own experience with other parks that you've enjoyed and just the importance of green space in your life and in, 
in the life of your family and, and your friends. That's it. That was the green space we had mm-hmm. around here. Right. Now, otherwise, you would take the kids back around after school and let them play on the playground. And there was a green spot down at Kate before it. They changed the school to KDC, and they built this on it, and they did this, and they tore that down, and they did this or whatever. And we could take them there, and they would have some green spots. Otherwise, we would have to drive, go out Rhode Island Avenue, and go out to 18th Street, to the park. Chuck Brown, where they used to have the concerts and everything there, and it was gorgeous, you know. It's, it's still gorgeous, you know. My God, if you don't have a car, you would have to load the kids up on a bus, try taking a cooler and a picnic lunch, and going all the way over there. Right. It's silly, you know. Why would I go over there? Mm-hmm. When, and I had green space here, and my kids and my grandkids could have gone and, you know, enjoyed where I was at. Right. But they didn't have that. Like, when your children were young, it was still fenced off. It was fenced off, but see, yeah. we had an ANC commissioner. Mm-hmm. She was sweet. She would have that fence open up periodically. Yes, yes. I mean, that fence was open uh, quite a while, and um, to not only to meet and greet, but to enjoy it. Right. And we would be there all day, and people look forward to doing it. Right. And we bought our tables and drinks and everything, and we got to meet each other. And we had a tour guide that took us all through there. Also underground? Yes. Wow. We went underground, too. We went wow. underground there. That's I'm going to tell you, that was something to see. Yeah. And enjoyed it immensely. But yet, still, this is our mayor. Wow. That's supposed to love D.C. and supposed to care about the people. <laughs> that lady is a piece of work, I'm going to tell you. Finally, I wanted to ask you, what excites you about having McMillan Park, you know, restored as green space that the community could use? I could see those geese coming back. I could see that space being open. I could see me meeting somebody I haven't seen, you know, some open the thing so I can, I can wear the know who's around me. Mm-hmm. I don't know who lives around me. Wow. Open the thing up. So I can meet you. You can meet me. I'll tell you where I live, what I've done, what you do, and whatever. Anything I can do for you, call me or knock on my door. Mm-hmm. I'm here. Right. My mama always told me, baby, if you keep your hand closed and you never open it to give, you will never receive. So my hand is always open. Anybody needs anything from me and I have it, honey, I'm not going to take it with me. You can have it. You can have it. Open that, tear that fence down, put that grass back down there where it belongs. Let me go out and take my shoes off for once and sit in a chair and run my feet through that grass one more time. I'm an old lady. That's the least you can do for me. Hell, you charge me taxes like coming out of the Yahoo, and I'm on Social Security. I want to thank you for uh, spending this time to talk with me and talk to talk to On the Ground, talk to our show. Okay. Um, this, Tell this the gonna... mayor, do me a favor. What's that? Tell her to come and sit on my porch for 10 minutes. 
and watch that traffic light when it changes every three, what, every 30 seconds, every 40 seconds, and count the cars that go up and down the street. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And see if they still want to put something else up there. Mm-hmm. And some of them act like it's the Indianapolis freeway. I beg for speed lights. I saw an old couple get killed turning the corner because oh someone goodness. was in a hurry. Oh, my goodness. There was a three-car accident out there the other night, all because they won't put up three cam- uh, speed cameras. Right. A child got killed. A neighbor mm. got killed right here on North Capitol. Mm. Well, look, I'm so glad that you could take the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. Okay, and I've been speaking to Mrs. Jimmy Boykin. She's a lead plaintiff in a new federal lawsuit opposing any kind of construction development on McMillan Park, which is actually listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mrs. Boykin. Okay, and you take care now. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. District of Columbia officials named in the federal lawsuit include Mayor Muriel Bowser. Her office did not respond to our request for comment before our deadline. We will post more of our interview about the lawsuit and about McMillan Park on our website, onthegroundshow.org. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter, where we have started to post the shows again. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Averum. That's E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M. And the podcast is on all of your podcast platforms under On the Ground with Esther Ivera. The music we play this hour included Only So Much Oil in the Ground by Tower of Power and Freedom by Navasha Dea. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivera. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the thank you